Well, it's good to see everybody here tonight as we are continuing this study. One more week of it next week. It's a, a series we've called uh, It's About Time. It's, it's uh, kind of bringing the future into focus. And uh, tonight, as you can see here, the part of what we're going to talk about is the rapture. Uh, you could call this, you know, when will the believing be leaving? You know, here's a picture I really like. You know, there's the clothes, you know, sitting there. The guy's gone. You know, that's the way it's going to be someday, I think, when the rapture takes place. Here's a, a sign in uh, Denton, Texas, I think it was years ago, uh, the rapture, separation of church and state. I like that. By the way, uh, separation spelled wrong. I always point that out. It's in Texas. So anyway, that's okay. But, um, but yeah, it's the, the, uh, didn't quite get that right. But, but what, we're, uh, what we're, we've been doing in the last three weeks and we'll continue tonight is talking about uh, the, the end times and Bible prophecy, eschatology, if you will, but really talking primarily about timing. Uh, because we've said really that the key issue when you look at Bible prophecy or eschatology is timing. Uh, you, you kind of have a, an overall grid or framework that you look at uh, future events through. And uh, we saw that there's four main interpretations. Preterism, again, I won't go through these again, but preterism, historicism, idealism, and futurism. It's kind of, a, again, a main kind of grid or, or template through which you look at these things. And uh, then I said there was a fifth view, kind of the eclectic view that kind of puts all of them together. And um, through that, we, we came to the idea, I'm a futurist when it comes to, to this, um, this terminology. Then we looked at uh, the last two weeks at the millennium. After you kind of get your general framework in mind, then you, you have a view of when you think the thousand-year reign of Christ will be. And we looked at three views, the amillennial view, the postmillennial view, and the premillennial view. And um, I gave the reasons why I think the premillennial view is the view that's most consistent with Scripture. So we kind of been narrowing down, you know, a futurist and then a premillennialist. But then the final issue you really have to make a decision about in your eschatology as far as timing goes is uh, the timing of the rapture. Um, and that's the, the, that's the one of the three that, that affects the, the least number of passages. Again, it's kind of like a funnel that narrows down. It's your overall view, your view of the millennium, then your view of the timing of the rapture. Now, the rapture is one of my favorite doctrines in the Bible. It's one of my favorite things to think and talk about. And I think part of the reason for that is, is this doctrine had a profound effect on me when I was about 12 years old. Some of you heard me tell this story before, but back uh, in May of 1970, the book, The Late Great Planet Earth came out, Hal Lindsey. And now that book in the 1970s, one book sold 27 million copies. I think it's, it's sold over 30 million now, but it was the best-selling book in the entire decade of the 70s other than the Bible. And I was uh, 11 years old when the late great planet Earth came out, um, or I guess I was still 10 anyway. I turned 11 a little bit later that year. But um, whenever that book came out, everybody was reading it. People in the youth group over at Metropolitan Baptist when I grew up were reading the book. And I wasn't in the youth group yet, but my sister was. So she had a copy of the book and kind of left it laying around. And I remember you know, I was hearing so much about all this stuff. I picked the book up and started reading through it, and I was captivated by, by what I found there. And you have to remember, this was kind of back in the, the Jesus movement kind of days, back in, the, back in 1970. Um, a lot of things were happening out in California through a lot of the Calvary chapels and various things out there. So there was a lot of interest at that time in prophecy. 
Uh, you had, uh, you know, 1967 was the Six-Day War. Um, you know, three years later, in 1973, you had the Yom Kippur War over in the Middle East. Uh, you know, the Cold War was raging between the United States and Russia. So a lot of things happening in the world. And uh, I read the book, and I heard about these things. And something about this idea of the rapture, Christ coming at any moment, just captivated me. And then the thing that kind of sealed it was there was a movie that came out called The Thief in the Night. And if you watch it now or show it to young people, they get a big kick out of it. I mean, it's pretty a B kind of movie for sure. But years later at the pre-trib study group I go to in Dallas every year, uh, the man who made all of those movies, Russell Doughton, he came to our meetings every year uh, down there. He had a long beard, real long hair. And he was actually, he was the atheist in the movie. So I got to tell him what an impact that had. But I think, you know, back in those days, things were different because everything's so refined and HD TV and all this stuff now. And back then, it was either a Sunday night or a Wednesday night at Metropolitan. They showed it on the old reel-to-reel projectors. And there's something about those things. They kind of rattle as it's turning. You kind of hear this noise, and the thing's not real clear. And I mean, there's something about it that's captivating. And that night, I happened to be sitting kind of near the projector. And... um, the movie, if you've seen it, you know, it's, it's uh, a man, it's different people telling people about the rapture, you know, that Christ could come at any moment. And, um, you know, different things are happening and there's different characters in the movie. And then finally, at the end, the rapture takes place. And there's this preacher that you've, you've got to know in the movie, and he's out mowing the yard of a church. And uh, they show him there and it goes away, the scene doesn't, it comes back and the mower's sitting there still running and he's gone. That was, they didn't have the kind where you let go and it stops, you know, back then. The mower just keeps running. And there's one scene where there's a man who's in the bathroom shaving with an electric razor and he's been sharing the gospel with his wife and they've heard about the rapture and the Lord's coming. And they're talking and the scene goes to her and then back to him, and he's gone, and the razor's just lying there in the sink, just buzzing there in the sink. And she walks in there and sees this, you know, uh, razor there, and he's gone, and she's just stunned by this because she, she knows what's taking place. And I remember, again, as a, you know, they didn't have all the special effects stuff you have nowadays, but, it, but as a young man about 12 years old at the time, that, that whole scene there captivated me like nothing ever had up to that time in my life. I was a believer already, but this idea of, of a, a coming of Christ to, to take people away to heaven in a moment in the twinkling of an eye captured me. And then you have the end of the movie, you remember there, where, you know, I think it's the old Larry Norman song, you know, I wish we'd all been ready. And you know, he was a hippie back then kind of guy, but he was the first kind of contemporary Christian singer. And he's got his band there, you know, two men walking up a hill, one disappears, one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Husband and wife are lying in bed. She hears a noise. She turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. That's the end of the deal right there. I mean, I was, you know, I was just mesmerized by this whole idea. And I've told this story I know before, but about a week or two later, I came home from school. We lived on 48th Street. I rode bus number 17. It was the worst bus in the fleet. And uh, got home from school and came home and started walking around the house, and I couldn't find my mom and my sister. And they were always there when I got home. I mean, my mom was always there when I got home. I mean, every, you know, every time I never remember ever not being there. 
and uh, began to look around, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, that idea of the rapture, you know, happened. I mean, I knew I was a believer, but, you know, as a kid like that, you're thinking, what, you know, my mom's always here, and I went out back. She wasn't hanging. I was, she still hung clothes on the clothesline back then, and I couldn't find her anywhere. I mean, I started panicking, looking all over the place because she was always around. And so I, was, I went in there, and I thought, you know, I, had my, I never called my dad at work. I mean, you never, ever called him and bothered him. I don't know that I ever called him in my life at work. But, I mean, I had the number there, and I was going to call my dad. And if they didn't get him on the phone, I was really going to be worried. And about that time, my mom and sister came in. They'd been next door at Mrs. Montgomery's house over there taking her something to eat or whatever. And I was never so relieved to see somebody in my life. <laughs> but, but those things that were going on, there, there was a lot of you know, what I would say about that time, now looking back on it, as someone who reflects on it, it was kind of like apocalypse was in the air. People were talking a lot about the Lord's coming and about prophecy and and these kinds of things. And what I would say today is, is that's gone flat. Uh, You don't really hear people in churches talk about Bible prophecy or the rapture or any of these things anymore. In fact, what you hear more than anything now is people actually attacking it. And for a lot of younger people, uh, because of maybe the Left Behind series or whatever, I'm not really sure what the reason is, they look at the idea of the doctrine of the rapture almost as kind of tabloid Christianity or something like that. They, they just don't take it seriously. Um, there's a, a, a lot of books been written, and a lot of people attack the rapture, but a lady named Barbara Rossing has a book called The Rapture Exposed. And she says this in her, the beginning of her book, the rapture is a racket whether prescribing a violent script for Israel or survivalism in the United States, which, by the way, I'm a pre-trib person. I don't teach survivalism. I think I'm going to be gone before that. But anyway, a lot of mischaracterizations. This theology distorts God's vision for the world. And she goes on and says about uh, the rapture, primarily pre-trib rapture, this theology is not biblical. We are not raptured off the earth, nor is God. Now, I would say, well, I wouldn't say God's raptured off the earth either. So, you know, again, people mischaracterize it. But then she says this, God created the world, God loves the world, and God will never leave the world behind. Well, he is going to leave it behind someday because it says, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. But anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, But people uh, attack the the rapture with with a lot of venom today. And uh, you'll see it out there on websites and all that. So, this is an issue that, that really gets people kind of worked up one way or the other. And my, my view really is this. I don't really care what someone's view of the timing of the rapture is so much. I mean, you know, if they agree with me, I like that. But I just wish people talked more about the fact that Christ is coming back and we need to be ready. Uh, one of the best sermons I ever heard on the Lord's coming was by D. James Kennedy, who was an amillennial, you know, post-trib guy, but he was fired up that the Lord's coming back someday. And it was, it was a great sermon. And I didn't agree with all the details in it, but you know, I want to present this view of the timing, but I don't want you to think that, uh, you know, somebody has to agree with me on this. I, I would say if you, uh, whatever view you hold, we need to believe that Christ could come back and we need to be ready. Uh, for that. I'll just mention this quickly. Uh, Ed Heinsen and I wrote a book about a year ago called Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? And some of the stuff I'm going to present tonight's from that. Um, Ed speaks a lot. He's a, uh, one of the main guys at Liberty University. He's seeing with the young people there and out in the circles he's in that there's just not any uh, real interest in the rapture and people actually just lampooning it today. So what I want to do tonight and next week 
is look at the timing of the rapture and, and talk about some of the issues related to it. So let me just set the table here for us at the start and just give you the, the five views of the rapture, five views of the timing of the rapture. And uh, then we're going to look at some other details, a few things I think you'll find really interesting tonight and helpful. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Most of you know this. Um, the pre-tribulation rapture teaches that we're in the church age now, and that one of these days, pre or before the time of tribulation that's coming, um, the rapture is going to occur, and uh, all believers are going to be caught up. All living believers are going to be caught up immediately to go and to be with the Lord in the air. We're going to receive an immortal, imperishable, incorruptible body in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Those who've died, their bodies will be raised, and the Lord will bring their spirits with Him, and they'll be rejoined to one another. So there's going to be a resurrection of the dead that's going to take place at that time, but a rapture of the living. So the word rapture really has to do primarily with those who are alive. Those who've died will be resurrected. Their bodies will be. Again, their spirit went to be with the Lord when they died, and they'll be rejoined. But the rapture has to do with being caught up in a moment of a twinkling of an eye and being, being translated to the presence of the Lord. So the pre-trib rapture says, before this time of tribulation comes, all believers will be caught up to heaven. Now, there's another view that it's not as common today. It used to be around more called the partial rapture, and that is at the rapture, only the faithful, totally dedicated believers will be caught up before the tribulation, and other believers will be caught up. Actually, the, the traditional view of the partial rapture is they'll be caught up in various stages throughout the tribulation. So there'll actually be several raptures. Um, you know, we're, we're all in one train, they'll say, but we're on different cars, kind of, you know. So, you know, everybody get, the, the, the really righteous, godly people get caught up pre-trib. The others go up at various points along after that. Um, now, again, I, I think I've mentioned this, but everybody I know that holds partial rapture always thinks they're going with the first group. That's always kind of interesting. You know, they always, now I'm, you know, I'm going with the group. The rest of you people, you know, maybe left. The, the couple of problems, there's several problems with partial rapture, but one is the only qualification for being raptured, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, is you have to be in Christ. It says there, the dead in Christ shall rise first, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The only thing you have to do is be in Christ. It doesn't say you have to be, you know, looking for the rapture, living a godly life, be some spiritual superhero. You just have to be a believer. The other thing is, is that um, if partial rapture is true, we're never really told anywhere what you've got to do specifically to be part of the first group. You, know, you think if there was a group that was going up ahead of everybody else at Santa, here's what you have to do to be part of that. It's never laid out for us. The biggest problem with partial rapture is in 1 Corinthians 15, when it speaks there of the rapture, it says, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, uh, the Lord is going to come, and it says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Notice the word all there. We shall not all sleep. Not everybody's going to die. It's a euphemism for death there. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So whenever the rapture happens, 
All believers will be caught up to be with the Lord. Another problem is you think about this, it kind of fragments the body of Christ. You have part of the body of Christ in heaven and the rest of the body down here on the earth going up at different times. So I think there's a lot of problems with, with partial rapture with this idea. Um, the mid-tribulation rapture obviously is self-explanatory. Uh, the rapture occurs at the middle of the tribulation. So believers endure the first half and then they're caught up to be with the Lord at the midpoint. So we'll endure the first half of the tribulation and go up in the middle. Um, that's a view, again, not quite as widely held today, but still there are a lot of people that hold that view. Uh, there's another view that just came about in recent times. Uh, Robert Van Campen holds this view. Marv Rosenthal, Robert Van Campen's deceased now, but uh, Marv Rosenthal was Zion's hope. He's the main uh, force really behind this view. And the pre-wrath rapture is basically a three-fourths tribulation view. So you have pre-trib and then mid-trib, and then the pre-wrath is about three-fourths of the way through the tribulation, the church is caught up to be with the Lord. Because what they would say is, they would say that the wrath of God is concentrated in that last part of the tribulation, and that's when we're going to be caught up. Now let me just say this, all of the, all the views of the timing of the rapture all agree that we are exempt from God's wrath and God's judgment. So all the, all the views agree with that. The key is when does the wrath start? So mid-tribbers would say, well, the wrath doesn't start till the middle, and so that's when we're going to be caught up to not experience the wrath of the last half. Pre-wrath says, no, the day of the Lord is just right here. It starts at the sixth seal in, in Revelation uh, chapter 6, and so that's when we're going to be caught up. Pre-trib people would say, we believe that the whole seven-year period is God's wrath, so we're going to be caught up before that time. And then the post-trib view says we're going to go through the whole tribulation, but most post-tribulationists believe the wrath of God is just right at the very end. It's focused there, and that we're going to be preserved through that time. So everybody believes we're going to be exempt from the wrath. It's just when does the wrath start? And how are we going to be exempted from that wrath? That's really, what, that's really the, what, what the question here is. Now, besides the pre-trib view, the main view is the post-tribulation view. And um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time kind of debunking the other views. I want to move next week to looking at the positive things for pre-trib rapture. But I just want to mention a couple of points here. One of them is in, in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. <clears throat> this is the strongest argument against the post-trib rapture view, I think. Um, Matthew 25, this is the Olivet Discourse on Wednesday before Jesus' death on Friday. He went up to the Mount of Olives with Peter, James, and John, gave them uh, his uh, foreview or forecast of the future, kind of the blueprint of the end times, and it uh, gives them a lot of signs that will portend His coming. But notice in verse 31, and this is a, an amazing scene. Think about this. Jesus is sitting there on the Mount of Olives with just four of His disciples there. And um, here's what He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him like, uh, uh, like sheep and goats. And He'll put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left hand. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just think about this for a moment. Here's a man who's going to be, who's going to be crucified in two days and rejected, spit upon, you know, put on a cross and crucified. And there he is telling his disciples, 
One of these days, the Son of Man is going to come. And all the angels are going to come with Him. And He's going to sit on a glorious throne. And all the nations are going to be gathered before Him. And He's going to separate them like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. That was one of the most bold, audacious statements that, anybody, you know, that anyone could ever make. Jesus sitting there saying, I'm the Son of Man. I'm coming back someday. And all the angels are coming with Him. I'm going to judge everybody. So, again, we don't want to, to, to lose the, the power of this. He's put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Clearly, if you go on and read, the sheep are believers, the goats are unbelievers. Now, here's the problem. The post-trib view says that when Jesus is descending to the earth down here at the end of the tribulation, at his second coming, he's coming back to the earth, believers on the earth are going to get caught up to meet Christ in the air, and then we're going to make a U-turn and come back down to the earth with him. So basically, the the second coming and the rapture, just kind of one event, just separated by a few minutes where we get caught up and meet him and come back down. Now, here's the problem. Notice this is talking about when the, when the Lord comes, and it says when he comes back, he's going to gather the nations and separate the sheep from the goats. Now, post-trib rapture is true. When Jesus gets back to the earth, there won't be any goats. I mean, there won't be any sheep, Right? Because all the sheep just got caught up and met him in the air and turned around and came back down with him. So the separation of the sheep and the goats will have occurred while he's descending. So when he gets down to the earth, there won't need to be a separation that's made. This is the most stubborn problem for the post-trib view, and I won't go into their explanations for it. Robert Gundry and others have said this is actually the great white throne judgment at the very end because he knows if this is the second coming, then his view can't be correct. So you have to move it to, you know, the very end of the great white throne judgment, although it seems certainly here to be talking about the second coming of Jesus. So that's a major problem with the post-trib view here um, that, that is a really a very stubborn one for them to overcome. I'll just mention one other thing. In Revelation 19 is the classic second coming passage in the Bible. I saw heavens open. He sat on a white horse. His, his name is called the Word of God. I mean, it's the Lord Jesus coming back to the earth. And you'll notice if you read Revelation 19, there's never a mention in chapter 19 of Jesus when he's coming back, of believers getting caught up to meet him in the air and come back down with him. In fact, they're already in heaven earlier in chapter 19, and they return with him from heaven. They're already there. So again, that's a problem to me with the post-trib view that while he's coming back, we're going to meet him and come down. In chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, the church is already in heaven. The bride's already there and been rewarded. Another problem with post-trib to me, this is just a logical argument, is to me it kind of renders the rapture inconsequential. I mean, why have a rapture at that point? Why not just wait till he gets down to the earth? I mean, he's coming down to the earth, and we get caught up to meet him and then do a U-turn and come down. I mean, you know, you miss two minutes of the, of the tribulation or something, you know. So to me it just kind of renders the whole idea of a rapture kind of inconsequential uh, really at that point. So those are the, the main views of the timing of the rapture. Now, what I want to do is something I've not really done here before. I want to talk about why do most people, what are the main reasons they reject the pre-trib rapture view? And there's a lot of that out there. You can see a lot of, of uh, things on the internet and all. And um, you know, a lot of people, I mean, they're just rabid about it. I mean, they, just hate the, they just hate the pre-trib rapture view and anybody that stands for it. 
So what are the reasons people reject the pre-trib rapture? Well, one is, one view is, we could call this the no-rapture view. There, there are more and more people today, and I meet them. I meet people sometimes, and they'll tell me, I don't believe in the rapture. They don't believe in a rapture at all. Now, sometimes when they say, I don't believe in the rapture, they mean they don't believe in pre-trib rapture. But some people just say, I don't believe in the rapture. Now, to me, that's difficult because, you know, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, you know, the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet them in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. The word harpazo there in the Greek to be caught up is the word that we've used the, the term for rapture today. So to me, you can't deny that that's going to happen at some point, right? It says it. The dead are going to be raised. We who are alive and remain are going to get caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So that's going to happen at some point. The question is the timing of it. You know, it's not a question of is it going to happen. It's kind of like I talk to people and they'll say, well, I don't believe in the doctrine of election. So we have to believe in election. It's in the Bible. You know, God's elect. God has chosen people. The issue is how do you define election? It's not whether it's, it's in the Bible or not. So 1 Thessalonians 4 has to be fulfilled sometime. Now, I don't want to read a lot of long quotes to you tonight, but I'm going to read one to you because N.T. Wright is, um, you know, one of the best-known theologians in the world, evangelical. Um, he wrote an article several years ago called Farewell to the Rapture. And here's what he says. The American obsession with the second coming of Jesus, especially with distorted interpretations of it, continues unabated. By the way, I wouldn't say there's an obsession with the second coming today. I'd say people don't think about it enough. But anyway, that's my opinion. He says, seen from my side of the Atlantic, the phenomenal success of the Left Behind books appears puzzling, even bizarre. Few in the UK hold the belief on which the popular series of novels is based, that there will be a literal rapture in which believers will be snatched up to heaven, leaving empty cars crashing on freeways and kids coming home from school, only to find their parents have been taken with Jesus while they have been left behind. This pseudo-theological version of Home Alone, I mean, boy, he's really piling it on here, isn't he, has reportedly frightened many children into some kind of distorted faith. It is Paul who should be credited with creating this scenario. Jesus himself, as I've argued in various books, never predicted such an event. And he said, Jesus never predicted this. Paul's the one that created it. Well, when you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I received this revelation from from the word of the Lord. Jesus had taught it, and Paul's saying, look, this is from the Lord that I got this. He he knew about what Jesus had taught. So that's a very perplexing statement to me. Then he says, Paul's mixed metaphors of trumpets blowing and the living snatched into heaven to meet the Lord are not to be understood as literal truth as the Left Behind series suggests. But as a, and then listen to how he describes it. But it's a vivid, biblically elusive description of the great transformation of the present world of which he speaks elsewhere. Now, I'm not even sure what that means. But he's saying, look, you know, the idea of people literally getting caught up and going to heaven without dying, I mean, you know, this is, this is just hogwash. You know, we all know that you can't take it literally like that. Well, I mean, Again, you go to 1 Corinthians, Paul says the same thing. You know, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. You know, we shall not all sleep. And sleep, again, is a euphemism for death. Not everybody's going to die. There's going to be a generation that's going to do an end run on the grave. But again, you know, he says, it's not to be understood as literal truth. But then the problem is, when you don't take it as literal truth, 
you could go off and kind of make it mean what you want it to mean. That's his view, but I could say, well, if you're not going to take it literally, I could say it means this. So more and more, you hear people just saying today, I don't believe in a rapture. So there's the no rapture view, and it's becoming more common. Another view out there is what we would call the minimalist view. A lot of people, when it comes especially to eschatology, especially to the rapture, take a minimalist view, and that is, I don't really care about it. Uh, I don't care about it. They have no concern for the details. Now, what's interesting is, a lot of them that are Bible students, they have a lot of interest in details and other areas of prophecy, but for some reason, when it comes to eschatology, they don't care about the details. And there's several reasons for this, I think. One is, a lot of people, that they just want to avoid negativity. And they see, you know, the rapture, I mean, people being caught up, people being left behind, judgment and all that. You know, there's a lot, we all know this, a lot of feel-good stuff out there today. You don't want to offend anybody or talk about anything negative. So, you know, the rapture can have negative connotations, so it's just kind of avoided. Just, just take the minimalist view and you're safe. Another reason is to avoid controversy. A lot of people just don't want to talk about eschatology to avoid controversy. You know, somebody in the church might disagree with their view or whatever. My thought, though, is if you're going to take that idea, you can't teach on almost anything. I mean, people have different views on baptism, on the Lord's Supper, on spiritual gifts. I mean, you can on and on and on you can go, you know, free will versus sovereign grace, all these various things. Um, you know, if we're going to avoid controversy, you're going to get pretty limited on what you can talk about. Again, just present it in a, in a good way. Everybody doesn't have to agree with you, but, you know, present it and, and move on. Another thing is I think a lot of people just want to avoid the detailed study and, and just don't want to get into the details again. You know, they're, again, they're kind of the, you know, the old pan-millennial view. It'll all pan out, and I'm not going to worry about it. Um, but again, I, I just think if we're going to be serious Bible students, we don't want to take one area of theology and just say, well, the details in this area of theology don't matter. I'm just going to kind of take a minimalist view of it. Now, again, if someone believes that Christ is coming back and they're excited about that and they don't know a lot of details, I praise God for that, at least if they're excited about it. But we ought to at least want to know something. Um, another argument against the rapture, pre-trib especially, is they'll say, well, you know, it's not in the Bible. You know, the whole idea of the rapture isn't even in the Bible. And again, that you hear that all the time. But the, the word rapture is not in English Bibles, but you have the word harpazo in Second Corinthians or in, in First Thessalonians 4:17, to be caught up. And in Jerome, when he translated the Latin, uh, when he translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, he used the Latin word there, the verb rapio. And so that's where the word rapture then came into English. So you don't find the word rapture in the Bible, but again, like I say, if you want to call it the harpazo of the church or the catching away of the church or the snatching away of the church or whatever word you want to use, um, certainly the concept is there. And we get the word rapture from, from the Latin Vulgate from Jerome's translation. So again, people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, you know, the word trinity is not in the Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible. There's a lot of words that aren't in the Bible. Um, but again, really the word is, in a sense, I mean, in, in the Greek word that was translated. Now, one other point, and I want to park on this for a few minutes, this may be about as far as we get tonight, that one of the constant arguments against pre-trib rapture is that it's recent in church history. I mean, if I've heard this argument once, I've heard it a hundred times at least. 
they'll say that the, the idea of the pre-trib rapture didn't come around until 1830 when it came, became uh, popular through the teachings of John Nelson Darby, an Irish brethren <clears throat> pastor over in, in England. Uh, Darby came to the United States many times and had an influence on a lot of people here. And uh, the, the pre-trib rapture and that idea began to really explode through the Bible movements of that day through men's like James Hall Gray and, and uh, C.I. Schofield and many others. Um, but the argument that it's recent in church history. Now, I told you guys, I think you know this, several years ago, in fact, gosh, this year it'll be 11 years in December, I had a debate with Hank Hanacraft down in Dallas about the dating of the book of Revelation. And uh, when that, the next morning, whenever I saw him out in the lobby, we started talking, and he brought up again this idea about, you know, the rapture's new. You know, it's an, and I've heard him say this on his program many, many times. You know, it didn't come about till Darby. And I told him, I said, Hank, that is, that's not a, a historically accurate statement. And I went through and told him about at least six or seven people who held pre-trib rapture. Some of them, I mean, uh, one of them is a, a, a thousand years before Darby um, and gave these specifically to him. Because up to that point, I thought, well, maybe Hank just doesn't know about, you know, these pre-trib statements, you know, that are out there. Maybe he doesn't know about them. But I thought if he does know about him and he just keeps telling people it started with Darby, then to me that's dishonest. So I told him that specifically in the lobby there that day and all that. Well, it wasn't a month later. I was driving in my car listening to him, the Bible answer man, and somebody called in about the rapture. And he says, well, that didn't start until J.N. Darby, you know, in 1830. And that's the point in which I realized that he's not being honest because I gave him, I mean, he could have gone and looked them up. I gave him books he could look at. I said, this, is, this information's out there. It's readily accessible. And he still says it. I mean, I heard him say it just a couple of years ago again. That's been 10 years before that I told him that. But it, it's, the reason that argument's used is it's a very powerful argument. Because if you tell somebody, well, you know, this whole doctrine of pre-trib rapture didn't come around until the 1830s, you'll think, well, if it took that long for it to come around, then it can't be correct. It can't be accurate. So it's a, it's a very powerful emotional argument that's used, but it's just a, an argument that's incorrect. And so I'm going to just read a few statements um, for you so that you can hear this for yourself. And again, we've, there's a lot of them in this book Ed and I did. And then I'm going to read some in a minute from a book. Now, this one, you'll have to be stout of heart to read this book. But there's a guy named William Watson, and he's got a book called Dispensationalism Before Darby. And he teaches at Colorado Christian University. And uh, I've, I've met him, and we've become friends. But he has found literally hundreds of pre-trib rapture statements before Darby. That, that's not what this whole book is, but a lot of it is. And there's another guy that I've met who is a preterist who can't stand the pre-trib rapture view named Francis Goomerlock. And Francis Goomerlock, I've talked with him. He told me that in all the reading, he's a Latin scholar. He says, I have a file... Uh, drawer full of pre-trib rapture statements before Darby. And he's honest enough, he's bringing some of them out now and publishing them. So he doesn't even agree with the view, but he's saying, look, I found these in my reading. He, runs, he said he runs across them all the time. So let me just read uh, one of these uh, statements to you. It's probably the oldest one. Uh, Pseudo-Ephraim was a Syrian church father. We don't know exactly when he, was, when he wrote, but it was somewhere between the 4th to 7th century A.D. So again, Darby's in the 1800s. This is in around 5 to 700 A.D. 
And uh, if you read this sermon, you can get online. It's pseudo Ephraim. It sounds like a, a modern day prophecy preacher. But the, the, the main uh, part about the rapture, he says this, we ought to understand thoroughly, therefore, my brothers, what is imminent. Or literally the word he uses is overhanging. It's this idea of the Lord's coming. It's overhanging. And prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation which is to come and are taken to the Lord. Now, you can, again, you can read it all in its context, and we're not, I'm not taking it out of its context. All the elect are gathered. They're taken to be with the Lord before the tribulation which is to come. And so this is one of the earliest statements we have of, of pre-trib rapture. Um, there's another uh, group uh, called uh, the Dulcinites in, in, in Italy in the 1300s. They had a pre-rapture, pre-trib rapture statement. Now, they had some kind of weird stuff too going on, but uh, they, uh, they did hold to that idea. I'm just going to read you though a few of these statements that, that Watson's got in his book here. Hopefully I won't bore you to death, but... Um, Let me just read a few of these. Um, There's one guy named Robert Matten in about 1620. He wrote about how uh, before Christ's coming with his saints to rule the earth, the ungodly would be left behind. So everybody always thinks you're left behind some new idea. There's at least six times in the 16th and 17th centuries that writers talk about ungodly people being left behind and the godly being caught up. Uh, to be with the Lord. So Tim LaHaye didn't come up with that, with that idea about being left behind. Um, if look at a few more. They're way, these are statements that are way back in time. Um, the word rapt, R-A-P-T, in uh, the 16th, 17th century in that period of time, uh, he found it eight times. He found rapture 10 times and left behind uh, six times. In fact, um, all the way back in, uh, I think my, the first one of these I had in here, the first place I had this marked, I, I think I was going to mention something. Um, back in, a, there was a, there's a writing uh, that mentions uh, being left behind and, and the rapture back in the 1400s. Um, here's a couple other ones I just thought I'd read that are kind of interesting uh, back from, from these uh, these times, some of the couple of these names you might recognize, not this one, but in 1700, a nonconformist minister named Oliver Haywood, he said this. They, they had big, long titles for their books back then. It was The Great Assembly or Discourse of the Gathering of All the Saints to Christ. I mean, that's a short one. A lot of them are like five, six lines. But he says, The souls of the glorified saints shall descend and be united to their bodies. And then ascend to meet the Lord in the air, and the wicked are left behind on their dunghill, the earth. So, all the glorified saints are going to descend, that is, their spirits, and be united to their bodies, and then ascend to meet the Lord in the air, and the wicked are going to be left behind on this dunghill down here on the earth. And he, he later uses the word rapt, R-A-P-T, uh, kind of for, for this idea of the rapture. Um, one other one here in, uh, in Watson's book find the places I've got it marked here. Um, Increase Mather, a lot of you have heard of him, one of the well-known Puritans. Um, He says this, when Christ comes, believers shall see the King in all His glory and will go with Him to the land that's very far off. Heaven is the land that's very far off. Christ has assured believers it shall be thus. 
John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. He will not go back to heaven and leave them behind him. No, they will sit together with him in heavenly places. The armies of heaven will follow him. Then he will come to judge the world. The saints in heaven will come with him. The idea is we, we go up to heaven and we're there with him. And then when he comes back to judge the earth, then we come back with him. Then he shall come to judge the world, will come with him. We are sure to be raised up together in that blessed day. And he goes on, it's a, it's a fairly long quote, but um, it's a quote that I, I think, again, clearly states this idea of the, the pre-trib rapture. Um, one of the clearest ones, though, is Morgan Edwards. Um, he was uh, helped found Rhode Island College, which later became Brown University, one of the Ivy League schools. And when he was a uh, student at Bristol Baptist Seminary in the 1740s, he wrote a paper proposing a pre-trib rapture prior to a a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. Now, he wasn't mid-trib because he just thought the whole tribulation was just three-and-a-half years. But here's what he says, Morgan Edwards. Now, again, this is uh, about 100 years before Darby. The dead saints will be raised and the living changed at Christ's appearing in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And this will be about three years and a half before the millennium, as we shall see hereafter. But he will, but, but, but will he and they abide in the air on one of those many mansions in the Father's house, and so disappearing during the foresaid period of time? In other words, the three and a half years. We're going to disappear during that time. The design of this retreat and disappearing will be to judge the risen and chained saints, for now is the time that judgment must begin at the household of God. So he says, we're going to disappear during this said time, this three and a half years. And the reason we're going to disappear is to go to heaven uh, so that we can be judged, which will be what we would call the judgment seat of Christ, which was when we believe that will take place in heaven. So again, the fact that all these people believed in this idea of a rapture before this time of trouble, before Darby, doesn't prove that it's true, but it does prove that, that, uh, that uh, Darby didn't come up with it. In fact, uh, in his book here, uh, Watson, Thomas Watson uh, makes the statement here when he's got his little chart in here about how many times all these different words are used and all of that. And he says that basically that nothing that J.N. Darby came up with uh, was new. In fact, here's what he says on page 177. Very little of what John Nelson Darby taught in the mid-19th century was new. It had all been out there. It had been out there in some cases for hundreds of years, but certainly in, uh, in England it had been around in 16, 17 uh, hundreds. So, again, when people use that argument, now a lot of people don't know about it. They just heard somebody on the radio or something say that. But, again, you're not going to remember all these names and all this stuff. You can at least tell people, hey, you can get on the Internet and, and, and look at this, and you can look up a lot of people who held to this idea of a rapture before this time of tribulation of the saints disappearing, people being left behind and all that, uh, long, long before Darby came along and certainly before Tim LaHaye came along. I was actually listening to a guy on Christian television uh, about a week ago or two weeks ago, and he was actually talking about a lot of what we're talking about here, talking about preterism and historicism. He was using all these words and explaining all this stuff to people. And the guy, I've heard him on there before, and he holds himself out as a real expert, and he said something. This is one of those deals where I hollered into Cheryl in the other room. You can't believe what this guy's saying. Anyway, I do that sometimes. But the guy was saying on there, he said, you know, this whole idea of futurism, you know, didn't come around, he said, till uh, like Hal Lindsey and these guys came around, whatever. I'm thinking, what? I mean, 
futurism, that these prophecies were future, was the view of the early church. I mean, Irenaeus was a futurist. Justin Martyr was a futurist. Anyway, I mean, people say some nutty things, and I think the problem is a lot of people just don't know history, and they really do think that, you know, nobody even thought about Bible prophecy till Hal Lindsey came along, or maybe some younger people don't even think anybody thought about prophecy till the Left Behind series, you know, was written. So we kind of have a narrow view a lot of times in the scope of, of things. One final thing I'll mention here, and we'll go. Um, the, the, final, uh, the final reason people reject the rapture in general, especially the pre-trib rapture, is they'll say, well, it's just escapism. You, know, you just want to get out of here and not have to go through all these problems, whatever. Well, I mean, that's not the reason I hold the view. I mean, it's a, it's a nice benefit of it, but that's not the reason I hold it. But again, we'll look at this next time, but all of the views of the timing of the rapture believe that we will escape the wrath of God. They all do. It's just, when does the wrath start? You know, mid-tribbers say we're going to escape the wrath. It's just three and a half years. Um, Pre-wrath people say we're going to escape the wrath. It's just going to be a year and a half. Post-tribbers say we're going to escape the wrath, but it's just going to be concentrated to the end, and God will preserve us through it. So the the pre-trib view is not any more escapist than the other views. It just has the wrath lasting longer, just a longer period of wrath. I remember uh, one time hearing Billy Graham mentioned this, and he talked about he was at the University of Hawaii speaking there, and he was talking about the Lord coming and the rapture, and a student stood up and said, well, this whole idea of the pre-trib rapture is just escapism. And Billy Graham looked at him, and he said, young man, by the time the the tribulation period nears its end, everybody's going to be looking for the exit signs. And that's true. I mean, people are going to be looking for the exit. And... um, God has promised that we are exempt from from the wrath to come. So next time what I want to do is pick up, I've got a little acronym again that spells pre-trib. We'll just go through and look at some of these simple arguments, but hopefully this will put some of these things in perspective and give you all maybe a little bit deeper understanding of uh, what the Bible teaches on this topic. Let's let's pray together as we close this morning or this evening. Father, again, we, uh, we thank you for um, the salvation you provided for us through your Son, but we thank you that it doesn't end at uh, justification or even sanctification, uh, but there's the glorious truth of our, our glory, glorification to come, that the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, may they be a great comfort to us indeed in these times in which we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.